And so with that being said, church, I would ask you to please open your Bible to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to start out reading this morning. It says in verse number 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overcome or overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. If you have a physical Bible, I would recommend you underlining that sentence. Verse 6, now these things took place as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, verse 11, we see this phrase again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let no one who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation, and church, this is probably one of the most powerful verses that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you and I that is not common to man. God is faithful, amen? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There is a phrase in our text that I pointed out to you that we must pay close attention to this morning. It is the phrase that we find in verse 6. And in verse 11, these things happened as examples, happened as examples. This phrasing this morning is calling us to more deeply investigate the history that is found here in the text. Not merely as observers this morning, but as active learners who seek to uncover the timeless lessons that are embedded into the pages of Scripture. We must embrace the profound opportunities that we see before us in the Word of God and draw insight and wisdom and guidance from them as we move forth from this sermon series. We must allow it to shape our present actions so that our future trajectory is different, so that we're walking in a different way after we leave. What do we know, though, about human history and about the human heart and mind? is that we tend to ignore the lessons of the past. We tend to ignore them. In fact, we tend to want to rewrite history, and in some cases, we attempt to remove it altogether. But we must learn the lessons of the past, or else we are doomed to repeat it. How many of you have heard this phrase or one similar to it? History repeats itself. You guys heard that phrase before? Well, many years ago, 
I had the opportunity while living in Florida to visit a um, Holocaust museum. And as I visited this museum with a group of friends, they had an exhibit on a specific Nazi concentration camp in Dachau, Germany. And Dachau was one of the first concentration camps that was built by the Nazis. And it was also the longest running concentration camp, opening March 22nd of 1933. The prisoners that were contained there lived in complete and constant fear of brutal treatment and terror detention. They had to stand in what they called standing cells where hundreds of men and women and children were forced into a very small confined space with no beds and no clothes and no water and no food. They were flogged every single day, beaten till they could not walk. And then they endured something that they called the, the tree or pole of hanging. There were 32,000 documented murders that occurred in that one specific camp. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of undocumented murders. As I walked through this exhibit, it was the most shocking and most sobering experience of my life. I was sickened, not only by what I saw, but also to the scale and the degree of what was truly a picture of hell on this earth. I remember constantly playing over in my head this thought, who could do such a thing? How could this truly happen? For an hour and a half, that thought just played and played and played in my head. And as I began to later research what went on in that camp until it was liberated in World War II by the U.S. Army, I came across some interesting things to note. The men who were in the U.S. Army that came and liberated that camp were so overcome with emotion. These were hardened battle soldiers and they became physically sick by what they saw and they began to openly weep. Some of them became so angry that they then in turn murdered the Nazi soldiers that surrendered. They murdered them in cold blood. Many of those soldiers said that the guards of the Nazi army deserved it because they were subhuman. But their question was not dissimilar to the one that was playing over and over in my head. Who could do such a thing? Who could? And church, I want to be very blunt with us this morning. That question and that line of thinking is extremely dangerous thinking. In the time I did not realize or recognize, but that very thought is dangerous. When the Nazis were asked why they did what they did, it was always the same. I was following orders. I was following orders all the way up the chain until there was no one to blame. I was following orders. And in the end, in the end, many people on both sides blamed God. They blamed God. Treating people subhuman is how the entire thing got started in the first place. It was an act of genocide that we see in the culture. 
1932, pre-World War II, some four million Ukrainians were intentionally starved to death by the Soviet state in an act of genocide. Between 1975 and 1979, the Asian leader Pol Pot intentionally murdered three million people through death camps in an act of genocide. And in one of the largest genocides in the world's history that we see as a current issue, we have what I would call the American Holocaust. The genocide and the abortion of unborn babies. In the last nine years here in America, we have murdered 29 million 591,962 innocent lives. And those are just documented cases and numbers that were released by the CDC. Nearly 30 million innocent lives. As I read statistics like this and read about information in regards to these things, I cannot help but have that same mindset come back to me. Someone is to blame. Someone is to to blame. And in the end, like I said, oftentimes people will blame God. We say things like, why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God do something To prevent it. Which then in turn leads people to believe that God is responsible for the evil and the suffering that is in this world as though it is God's fault. Which then ends up leading many of us to the mindset, I would never do something like that. I would never think Something like that. And when we say or think phrases like that, we set ourselves up as though we are better than other people because they sin differently than us. But church, I I would warn you this morning to be careful with that mentality. Why? Because then we start to sound like Peter who said, Christ, I will never deny you. Christ, I'm going to be right there with you. And you would be horrified and shocked at what we are capable of and what we would think we would never do, and in turn, we do it. I mean, the example of Scripture here directs our hearts and minds to remember not only who God is and what He has done, but how those two aspects should impact and affect our lives The word examples here in verses 6 and verse 11 are a strong Greek word with deep meaning. It carries with it the idea of a mark or an image, a teaching, something to look to and to learn from. But it's a warning for those of us who are living today as we read Scripture. Paul is, is writing to the church at Corinth but yet he's giving us a clear and concise warning for the past concerning the things that occurred then. You know, there was something that happened to God's people in the past and the church at Corinth was seemingly seeing a repeat 
And guess what? The church of today is seeing the same exact repeat. Our danger is that in this final analysis of the seven deadly sins, that we could still tend to think that we don't really have a struggle with any of the things that we talked about. I would never do that kind of sin. I'm not envious. I'm not a glutton. I'm not proud. I'm not angry. I'm not greedy. I I don't lust. Those are the sins of other people. I don't sin like that. I'm better than that. And when we do this, we have placed ourselves in such a dangerous place. I mean, the danger for the church today is the same as it was when Paul wrote this in Corinthians and the same as it was all the way back in the Old Testament that we're going to jump to in just a moment. And it is this for you note takers. When God's people forget, we end up repeating the same sins. When we forget We end up repeating the same sins. And then after those sins have been repeated, we begin to blame God and other people for the problems in our life. I mean, we we were going to go to the very example that Paul was using and see exactly what he was talking about. Because church, this morning, we need to see the example. We need to heed the warning. And we need to make a course correction. And so if you would, jump with me to the book of Exodus, all the way back, second book, second book of the Bible. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, and we will spend the remainder of our time here in this portion of Scripture. I'm going to start reading in verse number one. And he says, All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I've read this passage multiple times through the years, but as I studied and prepared for this very last message of this series, there was a newness and a fresh perspective as I began to look at the final analysis of the seven deadly sins. There is something in this passage that is astonishing, something that is remarkable, and here is the only place that it occurs in the Bible. 
But before we get there, there's something that each one of us needs to think through. It's the same vein as what Paul was teaching to the church at Corinth. That when we look at sin, it's not about who could do such a thing, but rather what am I capable of? And I want to answer that question for you so that you don't have to think way more than what you think or want to admit. That's what the answer is. What am I capable of way more than I want to think or admit? And so the first Note I want you to make this morning is that we drift into sin when we are disappointed by God. We drift into sin when we are disappointed by God. Did you notice the people in the text said there's no water for us here, that we're going to die of thirst? Why did you bring us out here to watch us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Who could do such a thing? Do you hear it? Do you hear it in the text? The attitude of the Israelites. I would not have done it like this. I would have taken us a different way. We would have gone to a different place. But if we take a step back for a moment and we look at the text, we realize that the people are not, are not angry at Moses. They're mad at God. They're mad at God. They're disappointed in the way God brought them through the wilderness. Why won't God do anything? Did you hear him at the end? Is the Lord even among us? The question was raised already in the hearts and minds of the Israelites before they even spoke it. And so what did the people do? What did the people do? They began to take their frustrations out on God's representative. Moses said, the people are ready to stone me. They couldn't get their hands on God, but they could get their hands on Moses. They could get their hands on Moses, and so they chide him. And they begin to bring accusations against him. I mean, think about this this morning. Maybe you're mad at a Moses in your life. Maybe you're mad at a Moses in your life. Someone who represents authority. Someone who, who represents a parent or a parental figure or, or a spiritual leader or someone other than that. And you're not really angry with that individual. Your problem is with God. And so many people blame the church or the pastor or the parent for how their life turned out. But the issue the real issue at hand is that life didn't go the way that you wanted. That it got difficult. And then sin set in. And you made choices and you don't like how your life is right now. And so it, you begin to accuse someone. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to check your own heart. Saying, God, how did I end up here? What did I do? Where did I go wrong? What truth did I not follow and embrace in your word? And the people here in the text were in a way charging Moses with treason. And they were so angry that they were ready to stone him to death. Man, the people wanted to take Moses to trial. 
And you may be sitting in here this morning saying, well, I would have never do that. Are you sure? Are you sure this morning? Who is it that you are angry with? Remember, anger is not always hot and violent. Sometimes anger is cold and calloused. It's indifferent. It ignores. It avoids. And so I have a question, and I know today's focus is not on on anger. But who gets the brunt of your bitterness? Moses got the brunt of of the Israelites' bitterness. Who gets the brunt of, of your bitterness? Who are you blaming for the problems that happen in your life? Which really then leads me to a whole nother set of questions. Is your life dry and you're trying to find some other source to fill that void? What is it that's missing in your life? What is it that you've decided to to fill that God-sized hole with? Is it a relationship? Is it food? Drugs? Alcohol? Pornography? What, What is it in your life that you're trying to fill the the void that was only meant for God. Because that's what's happening here in Israel. Life was not and had not been going the way that they wanted. And instead of seeking out God, they just wanted something else from Him. And so God is like, I'm going to check your heart because you're still stuck in Egypt. You're, you're still a captive. You're still there when I've, I've brought you into freedom. I, I've, I've given you the way out. I've given you the strength to make it. And you're still stuck over there. And I wonder in this life, how many times we find ourselves here Disappointed and dry. Disappointed and dry. Disillusioned because of unmet expectations. Church, for for you note takers, I want you to write this down. Disappointments and desert seasons should drive us to seek refreshment from the giver of life. I mean, the children of Israel should have remembered God's track record. I mean, he, he rescued them out of 400 plus years of bondage and slavery. I mean, he previously gave them a supply of water. He gave them manna to eat so that they could live He brought them through the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his men. Time and time and time again, God's faithfulness was seen and they should have remembered the goodness of God and praised him in it. But instead, they wallowed in their disappointment. They walked through a dry season. But the problem this morning that we have is we often set goals for God. We set goals for God. 
And then we become disappointed when God doesn't fulfill the goal that we set for him. I mean, we become haunted day in and day out by the reality that God did something totally opposite to that which we thought he should have done. God, did you bring us out here to die? Did, did you, do you even know what you're, God, are you even here? Are you even among us right now? Why are you allowing evil to go unchecked? You know, most of us that have been in church any length of time, we have a decent theology concerning God and that he is good. Right? I mean, if somebody asks, do you believe that God is good? I don't think any believer in their right mind is like, no, I don't believe God is good. Right? We have a decent theology concerning whether or not God is good And yet this good theology sometimes leads to really bad practice. Terrible practice. I mean, it causes us to confuse reliability with predictability. That's what it does. I mean, because we think that God's mind is somehow our mind. And then we set goals for God. We set expectations. Because for some reason in in our finite mind. We think we have the mind of God. Man, we know what we want, and so we put it into the mouth of God. That's it. And then we let our desires govern our expectation of God. And then the end result is that we're in this dry place and we become disappointed and we seek out our vice sins and turn on God by turning away from him. And so we drift into sin and begin to blame others for the problem. And the reality is this morning for each and every one of us, there is hope. There is hope for us, amen? Amen. There is hope and it's this, that God dealt with our sin and our suffering by standing in our place. Man, and that should cause each one of us in here this morning to jump for joy. Each one of us. God dealt with your sin and your suffering, past, present, and future, by standing in your place. And in this passage, God does the most shocking thing, in my opinion, in Scripture. He says to Moses, go and take your rod and take the elders to that rock and I want you to strike it. You're like, Pastor, why is is that shocking? God's just going to provide water for the Israelites. Why is it shocking? Well, because Moses could not pick up that same rod that was turned into a serpent that parted the Red Sea without remembering the power of God. There was no way that he could have picked that up and and all of a sudden just forgotten that that same rod was placed in a huge body of water so that they could walk on dry land. There's no way that he would have forgotten And one of the greatest themes in the Exodus account from Egypt to Canaan was that God was with the Israelites. 
One of the greatest themes. He was with them every single step of the way. And here again, he would show his presence to Moses and the people of Israel. I mean, I want you to look back with me at the text. He says in verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike that rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they had tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God commanded Moses in the presence of of the Israelite elders to strike the rock with his rod and water would come forth to satisfy the thirst of every single person there. And so Moses leads the people to this place. But where is God? Where is God? I mean, God was standing on the rock. Did you see it in the text? He says, Take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. Man, is that ever answering the question, is God among us? I mean, they have a cloud of pillar during the day and a cloud of fire by night. And now figuratively, God is saying, I'm standing on the rock. And he says, Moses, strike it and water will come out. In other words, God is saying, Moses, hit me. Hit me. And I will give living water so that you can live. Moses is saying, I have the authority because of this rod. And that rod was used for punishment. And God is saying, Moses, I will take the blow for the people. I will take it upon myself. And in doing so, for the first time, in a very clear picture, there's a foreshadowing of something so significant. Something so special here in the text that would alter the course of the entire world. Can't you see it? God did something about the suffering and about the sin. He stood in our place. He stood in our place. He took the punishment and provided life. He established for us a picture of Christ, our Redeemer. And the Bible tells us repeatedly in the book of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, that Christ is our rock, that he is our cornerstone, that he was struck. What did Isaiah say? He was bruised for my iniquity. What else did Isaiah say? That by his wounds we are what? Healed. We're healed. The gospel of John chapter 4 tells us that, that Jesus himself will bring forth streams of living water. The book of Hebrews says that Christ died once for all and no further sacrifice would be required for sin. 
God could have stood in that place with Moses and completely wiped out all of the Israelites. But instead, he provided for them. Let me just tell you this. The the last thing we would have done with a bunch of ungrateful, complaining, and forgetful, idol-worshiping people would be to provide for them. People who continue to break God's law and live contrary to God's ways. The last thing on our mind, if we were God, would be, I'm going to bless them and provide for them. I mean, the people should have been punished for their actions and attitudes. I mean, they deserved it, right? They they deserve to be punished. I mean, who acts like that after everything that God did for them? It's evil. It's pure evil. I mean, can you see yourself here though? Can't you see yourself as the Israelite? I mean, we act just like that. And we deserve punishment. But then there's this beauty that we see of God's perfect justice. God could wipe out all the evil without wiping out you and I. Christ would be the rock and from him would gush forth life. And Christ's death on the cross and the victory over the grave made new life possible and your and I punishment pardonable. And now a river of life is available to you. And there is joy in knowing that we will never get the rod of God's wrath as a devoted follower. Jesus suffered in your place. He pardoned your sin, and because of that, there is joy. Now, I want to close this series and sermon out by saying a couple of things. There is a reality that as we depart from worship together today that you and I will still struggle with these seven deadly sins. There's a reality that as we depart from here today, we could find ourselves in seasons of dryness. There's a reality for each one of us in here today that we will probably still have disappointments in this life. And yet, Jesus is our joy And so, Pastor, what, what about the dry spells? What about the disappointments? What, what happens when we are tempted to turn away from God and go to our sin of choice? What, what then? I mean, we, we, we have to remember in this life that there will be, in the face of great disappointment and dry seasons and temptations, our mind will usually run to the place asking God for an explanation. God, please clarify for me what's even going on in this life. And we take that mentality because we foolishly think that an explanation will make us feel better. That it will somehow just take away all of the pain and the the confusion happening in your mind. And so for those of you who are walking through those disappointments and those dry seasons. 
For those of you who are walking through those moments in your life where you seem like you can't get away from that vice sin and it's a vicious cycle. Instead of an explanation, Jesus offered you something far superior, himself. He offered you himself. He came for you and I. But he does not answer to us. He doesn't. God does not subject himself to our agenda, no matter how great that agenda may seem. Instead, Jesus demands of the follower to submit yourself to his agenda. You and I can live in a state of disappointment and and do daily battle with the seven deadly sins, or we can submit to Christ. We can place all of those disappointments under the power of the cross and hold on to the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Going back to the Old Testament, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Be strong and take heart and have no fear for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not take away his help from you. And so Christian in here this morning, take heart. Take heart, Christian. Hold on to hope. Because there is great freedom from the seven deadly sins. But that freedom and that joy is only ever found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in the final analysis, we will either submit To the Savior and experience joy, or we will submit to our sin and experience misery. And so the question before the house today is which one will you choose? Let's pray. We're reminded, God, of the profound truth that is embedded into the passage that we have explored today. I mean, you have shown us that that history serves as a powerful teacher. That it it provides examples from which we can glean wisdom and and guidance and and, and help. And so today, God, I'm asking that as we dive deeper into your truths, that we would not be passive observers in this life but that we would be active learners. Ones that are ready to submit and ones that are ready to be changed by you. And at the same time, God, I know that we stand before you this morning and we have to acknowledge that we fall short. That we oftentimes fall into the trap of of thinking ourselves exempt from the struggle and the sins that have plagued humanity since the beginning of time. And so we, we come before you with our limitations. We come before you. Better than anybody else. And God, we, we start right here and we ask 
God, that you would do a work in our lives as we, we turn away from, we, we repent of the sin of pride and envy and gluttony and anger and greed and lust. And any other sin that may have taken root in our hearts, help us to confront the, the darkest corners and seek not only your forgiveness, but your transformation. And when the moments of disappointment and dryness come and we're tempted to turn away from you, God, I pray that we would seek fulfillment in you and you alone. And as we reflect over these last several weeks of this series, may we submit ourselves to you, God. May we find freedom and joy in you. God, give us your strength to, to walk the path of righteousness because that's the only way that we bring honor and, and glory to your name. And so, God, I just I pray that you would use this series because, Lord, we, we need you. Every hour, we need you. And I just ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.